Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. That was a one-man crew for the whole shoot, except for that one shoot. So I hired a sound person and a camera person because I needed to, to, to be vulnerable. I needed to show my vulnerability. I needed to create a situation where I didn't have control. So that was the only way I could do it, you know? Is it, like, how do you be, you know, how do you be vulnerable when you're the one in control of the filmmaking? Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 89. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Every once in a while, a young filmmaker comes out of nowhere and takes the doc world by storm. Their name suddenly starts popping up everywhere, whether it be in film magazines, film festivals, newspapers, entertainment shows. Morgan Spurlock did it over a decade ago with Super Size Me. Before that, of course, you had Michael Moore with Roger and Me and Steve James with Hoop Dreams. This year, Bing Liu's name keeps coming up, and his doc, Minding the Gap, it seems to be all over the place this past summer. So when Tim Wardle, director of Three Identical Strangers, who was on fairly recently here on TDL and back in episode number 85, he recommended that we have Bing on the program, I definitely took note. And so being the diligent doc filmmaker and host of a doc filmmaking podcast that I am, I decided to investigate into this Bing Liu and this minding the gap a bit further. And what I discovered made me immediately reach out to this young man from Rockford, Illinois. His film won the Sundance 2018 jury for breakthrough filmmaking. He was essentially recruited by Kartemquin to come on as co-producers. Steve James not only came on as executive producer of Minding the Gap, but Steve then asked him to story produce and DP on a handful of episodes of his own current docuseries, America to Me. Bing was also listed in Variety magazine as one of 10 documentary filmmakers to watch in 2018. And so for today's program, I'm happy to sit down with Bing and have a candid conversation about his experiences in the film industry, his life in Rockford and in Chicago, Illinois, and of course, his exhilarating documentary, Minding the Gap. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Documentary Life. Bing, welcome to the program. It's exciting to be speaking with you. Thanks for having me. Bing, we often will sort of, to get some sort of context on who we're speaking with, we'll often start with a little bit of background on our on our filmmakers. I, I know that you worked in Grip and Electric, worked in G&E initially, and then moved into the camera department um, as an AC. 
how has working, well, I guess a couple of things here. You were filming your friends, of course, for for Minding the Gap as well, and you were doing this for, for a while now. I'm curious what came first. Were you working in the industry first, or were you shooting, you know, shooting skate videos, really? Which one came first? And then how, how did working in the industry uh, commercially, how did that uh, kind of help your documentary filmmaking? I'll lead by saying that they weren't really my friends. They were um, people that, uh, you know, one of them I had met, um, in my mid twenties when I started mining the gap mm. in earnest. And then, um, the other one, you know, we had skated a few times as teens, but I, you know, so I, I did, but I did start filming skate videos when I was 14 or 15. And okay. then, you know, I, I did my own films even. And then, um, you know, when I was 19, I was going to school at the time. Uh, I went to community college and then I went off to, uh, four-year university to study literature but while i was doing that i got an opportunity to um there was this guy who was this uh, local 600 camera assistant mm. who had worked in all, all the you know major chicago productions like batman and superman and stuff um and he had uh moved to rockford which is about a couple hours west of chicago yeah. um where i was living at the time to start a family it was just a lot cheaper to buy a house yeah, and, right. you know have a bigger bigger lot and so he was sort of reinventing his career at the time you know he was not burnt out but just you know wanted to maybe try a different avenue in his career so he bought a, a grip truck a bunch of you know old ratty c stands and little richardson's <laughs> and stuff you know but so he was like doing all these he was like doing all these commercials and you know ad work in in rockford and he was just doing it by himself for the first year or two, uh, and he was getting really burnt out. He just really needed somebody to help him. Um, and at the time, he had a studio in downtown Rockford, and and I got wind of him because he um, would rent out his studio space mm. for things like comedy shows. Mm. So I made a music video for my friend, and uh, you know we were watching it at his house, and you know another friend of his was over who was a comedian at one of those shows. And he was like, hey, man, like you, you do great video work. Can I, you know, give you this card for this guy who I know he's looking for an assistant right now? And so I took his card. and I was like, oh, cool. Awesome. And I called him. Uh, I was just like cold called him. I was like, hey, you know, my name is Bing. I'm just this local um, person who, who, you know, does video work. Like, do you I heard you need uh, an assistant. And he was like, yeah, what are you doing tonight? <laughs> <laughs> That's how it often happens, isn't it? <laughs> you got the doors open and you got to jump into it. Totally. And so, you know, from there on out, it's like he just really took me under his wing and, um, you know, taught me all this stuff about um, grip and electric. Mm. Um, but he, he would also bring me out uh, on bigger jobs. I was going to say, you know, yeah. Yeah to intern in the camera department or be a camera PA. And so I was really getting the best of um, both worlds in terms of, you know, (laughs) the craft of cinematography, Absolutely. Um, but especially lighting. It was just, you know, so invaluable to learn, you know, the in and outs of that actually sort of lost touch with them for a few years. And I saw him recently because we just had our Rockford premiere of mine in the gap. Yeah. So, what you know? What was that like? Okay, so so you brought the film to Rockford, and and you invited your friend and mentor to see the to see the film. Uh, what was that like? Because I mean, he really. It sounds like he was fairly instrumental in getting you work in the industry. And then this is your this is your documentary film that you've been working on for a while. D- did you get to talk with him after after he saw the film? 
I did, and that wasn't his first time. And I'll, I should—I just want to give a shout out to his name. Yeah. Um, this is Tom Secura that I'm speaking about. Okay. Um, he—he he actually came out to Sundance because he was so uh, just over the moon about us getting into Sundance. Fantastic. And he—he he brought out like some of his his staff, and you know, many of them had grown up in Rockford, so yeah. That's that's where he first saw it, and it, he you know he was just so proud of me, you know. I'll bet. And it I'll was bet. it was it was a really heart touching yeah. to to hear hear yeah. his just to see his response. You know, those are those are great moments. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. Are you gonna put me smoking weed? Thing? Maybe. Dude, I don't think just like to do it. Toast. I've given you free range. I mean, I I have no stipulation. <laughs> <laughs> I've always needed more out of life, more out of where I was. You know, my parents ran this very controlling house, and so I ran away a lot. By like 16, I was no longer living with my parents, like, at all. I just wanted to fucking escape. You ready for some fucking intense action? Take one. Every day. <laughs> I want to make a mantra. Say hello to the video live. Hey, do it again. I can see that thing in there moving around, Bing. I know you're playing with my face or something. Stop filming and he's going to crash. Hope I get there right on How long were you filming Minding the Gap and how long were you working on the dock while you were also, you know, paying the bills, doing the doing the commercial gigs? And uh, how did the experience of working commercially, how did that help you get a film like Minding the Gap made? I mean, it certainly helped financially. Like I, I bankrolled Minding the Gap on my own for, you know, four years. I mean, I started in 2012. I was coming off a couple, so I was always doing these personal projects on the yeah. side, but you know, so I started working as a G&E uh, when I was 19, and then for this guy, and then when I was 23, I was able to join the Cinematographers Guild. He had an opportunity to, you know, hire me as a second AC yep. that he was pulling focus on for this uh, movie with Zac Efron and Dennis Quaid, and uh, you know, I just from that job, you know, there's a lot of stunts in that movie mm. so it was like they were hiring additional camera people all the time so oh, wow. i basically met every single chicago camera department <laughs> through that movie and they just you know they they saw that it's not hard to tell um you know who's sort of a hard worker and a smart worker right um so i just kept getting hired after that movie and uh yeah and so i was always doing these side projects though i you know i i had done this uh short doc about these two Vietnamese immigrants who were both moved to Chicago in mm. 93. And it was very much about them finding their identity and also, you know, this family trauma that they had both, both experienced in very different ways. Mm. And then from there I had done this, it was like the skate doc, uh, about like skateboard videographers and photographers. And it was more like this meta look at, you know, like why or like, what is, what is the effect and what is the reason for, 
for all this mm. capturing of, of skateboarding, you know, because it was getting like ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I was just, you know, like I'd, I'd be going out and there'd be like more photographers and film filmers than skaters yeah, at a spot. Yeah, it's pretty and, amazing. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and it's not like these aren't sponsored skaters, you right, know, it's just right. like this is all very DIY. Um, so I was really examining that. But through that and conversing with a lot of skate filmers and photographers, I discovered like a lot of just these dark, deep, you know, feelings that people yeah. really wanted to get off their chest. And so I was like, well, what if what if that's like the seed for the next project? Mm. And so in 2012, I just, you know, I was traveling and skating anyway. So I just started interviewing skateboarders about, um, you know, just their relationship with their parents, you know, like what heartache feels like to them. Do they ever feel lonely or depressed? And there were some clear patterns of trauma and abuse that, you know, was prevalent. And then a year in, I went back to Rockford uh, and it was, you know, just another stop on my on my uh, tour to do this project. Mm. And that's where I met Kier, who becomes one of the main characters in Mind of the Gap. When I was younger, I didn't really understand why my dad would talk about being black so much. But I remember he was like, if you could choose again, choose to, to be black. And at first I didn't get it. I was like, why would you want to be black when all this shit's happening to us? But he explained it as like, because we have to deal with these issues, it just makes other things that like my white friends would complain about like not even be a problem to me. He knew me growing up because he watched my skate videos. Oh, but, you know, okay. for me, it was like I filmed him getting into a fight at the skate park once. Right. Right. right and I was right. able to sort of use that later um, and source footage from other people um, when he was older, when I had moved to Chicago already. But so a year, you know, like at the time I was a few years into working in the union, um, making a pretty good career there. I was, you know, uh, on track to work my way up the camera department. I was one of the guys that would always get called. And so, uh, you know, it was like, oh, let me just do Mind in the Gap and that would be my next personal project. Um, but then in 2014, there there was an app, like my friend who I'd met uh, on a commercial, his wife was doing outreach work hmm. for one of um, Kartemquin films. Uh, films. Uh. Um, and so she was like, Hey, you know, Kurtemkun has this fellowship for filmmakers of color called diverse voices and docs. You should apply with your, you know, your, your documentary. And I was like, okay, yeah, let me, let me look into it. And it was, uh, you know, it was like, there's like two days before the deadline. Yeah, of course. Was, right, let me just fill this thing out. <laughs> Again, another door opens up and you have to jump in. Exactly. Yeah. And then, but then I ended up getting in and I had never heard of Kurtemkun before. I'd never seen any of their films. <laughs> But I showed up and not you know, even hoop 20... dreams. You hadn't even not seen even hoop dreams. <laughs> no, I was so in the dark about all that. Wow, that fantastic. Whole world. Yeah. Um, but of course, <laughs> once I once I did the fellowship, you know, and what it was was six months, once a month you meet, and for that once a month meeting, you know, they they focus on just a different aspect of independent documentary filmmaking. Yeah. You know, so the first one was very much about writing like a synopsis, writing a, a log line. And, you know, if you don't have a title, coming up with a title. And at the time, my, my film was not titled Minding the Gap. It was titled Ennui and Amour. Mm. Um, you know, being an English major that I am, yes. I, was just, <laughs> I just found those words really 
really fast, really beautiful. And so, you know, through, I think that first or second session, that's where I was like, okay, let me come up with a better title. And mine in uh, the gap was just this phrase that I'd heard over the years. Well, I, I always assumed where like, it came from. Yeah. You know? Which is interesting because for me, uh, so my wife is British. And in fact, uh, we were, we are relocating here as we speak back to the UK and, uh, and mind the gap there means something entirely different. <laughs> and when I first started hearing the title of your film, I assumed it was a doc in 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 the UK, and, and it was about public transit. <laughs> so. Right. I mean, in hindsight, like I ascribe this meaning to it now, where it's like, oh yeah, well, you know, public transit and the subway, like it evokes, uh, you know, even that is is. You know, maybe it's a stretch, but you can analogize it to totally. You know, it evokes this feeling of public movement, of like you know, urban movement. That's right. That's of, right. Uh, you know, really stepping off a platform and like just going somewhere yeah, really no, fast, which yeah. is so. Uh, yeah, I mean, so in working with Cartemquin, it's like they were like, oh well, you know, we do we do verite films. Yeah. Like, well, what, what is Verite? Yeah. Watch some of our films. Uh, maybe you could show me films. some of those. <laughs> right. And, and it was like, okay, well, how do you, I mean, what, you know, what do you do? And Gordon <laughs> Quinn, um, you know, he, he was like, well, back in the day we used to shoot on film. Uh, we'd roll, you know, it was really expensive, but so we'd roll tape, audio tape, and we'd hang out. And every once in a while when something interesting happened, we <laughs> picked the camera back on my shoulder and we filmed. And I was like, oh, that's kind of like. I mean, that's kind of like what I did kind as of a what teenager. You, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so it's like, okay, I could, let me try this out. And so um, at the time, Kier was, you know, someone who was part of this ensemble of, of characters. Right. Um, it just, it became more economically feasible to mm. follow him. Because mm, mm. I, I had like gone out to Portland, Oregon, like three times. I'd like kept going down to St. Louis. Uh, you know, I lived in Portland for 25 years. Oh, really? Gotcha. I mean, I've spent half of my life in Portland. That that's where I worked in in, in the industry in, in in commercial and doc was up until the last a year ago when I we sold our house there. I lived in Portland forever, and it's of course it's oh, a wow. huge skate town. Yeah. Yeah, I mean Burnside is you yeah know, very, his skate history. <laughs> yeah, right, um, right. But uh, yeah, so it just became more um, economically feasible to just go back to Rockford almost. So that's wild. I just, and it wasn't you know, so it was just like well. Kier's in Rockford. Let me go back there. And, yeah. Oh wait, Zach, this other guy that you know I knew as a teen, like he's about to become a dad. Right. Like that'd be, that'd be an interesting story to track. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so anyway, I mean, uh, working with Cartemquin um, after the six-month fellowship, they were just so interested in the project, and right. I got to hand it to Tim Herzberg, mm. especially. He just kept hounding me, saying, "Hey, you gotta come in and let us know how the project's going." And, and then at the end of 2014, beginning of 2015, they they were like, "Hey, we want to bring you on as a co-production. Oh, would you be huge. Would you be interested?" And I was like, "Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't. You know, I'm just doing this thing on my own." Bing, uh, Bing, are you telling me that they approached you then ultimately to to come on as co-producers? They did. Yeah, I didn't even know that Amazing. that was a thing. People, yeah. there are um, doc filmmakers that dream of such a thing, Bing. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm like just so appreciative and grateful. You yeah, know, I, and, and we've had we've had uh, a bunch of people from Car Tenquin, and including Gordon, of course, and Steve James on on the program. And one thing that I've never gotten out of this, and 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 maybe you're the perfect person to talk to, is 
Can you give a snapshot for for our listeners? What does what does the day to day life look like when somebody like Card Tempkin comes on as co producer? How how does that change or evolve things for you when you're working on a project like Minding the Gap? I mean, they love fostering first time filmmakers, and so I'm at that demographic. And what they, I mean, on a on an emotional level, it just feels really validating, mm. and it gives you this this fuel this emotional feel, which uh, is so hard to sort of sustain yeah. as an independent documentary filmmaker. Oof, we talk um, about it all the time. And it, yep. Yeah, so it's like, wait, so Pertempuan films, the people who did Hoop Dreams, yeah. who've been around since the 60s, who you know have had a fundamental effect on documentary filmmaking in the U.S. and arguably the world, yep. what they want to do this project with me, and <laughs> they want to throw their support behind it. I mean, that's huge. Incredibly validating, and and and, and there's there's um, not only validating, but there's almost a uh, it's very empowering, right? It is. So I mean, one of the so I mean they there's I I actually kept telling Tim I'm like how does this work? How does this you know? So I was figuring it out for a long time, like my relationship with Kurt Templin. Yeah. But it's you know like they're they're sort of they're, it's like loosely structured they started as like sort of a commune yes <laughs> like that's right this, you know <laughs> not that's really right. but yeah i mean it's it sort of has that you know that spirit and so it's you just take well like, then you, even you the name of, was formed that way in, in many ways it is yeah so it's a portmanteau of the yeah. three founders last name you know with gordon yeah. quinn being the quinn of cartoon quinn yeah and so uh on an everyday level i i mean we would just keep in touch like i would I'd write grant applications and it right. felt really good to be able to put like, Oh yeah, I'm co-producing this with car template. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was sort of the strategy for our, our time working together was just like, let's, let's write grants and yes. try to go for it. And, um, and that's and exactly the, what happened. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so, but, uh, uh, one of the first things that they were able to do was to get me into Tribeca, yeah. um, all access, yeah. which is it with, you know, it's, which includes this two-day industry pitch session, ah. um, and so that was my first experience. And now I, I like, you know, I feel like I'm very familiar with these meat market type of uh, settings and, and like. I you know, I think it'd be great for our listeners to get a snapshot of what um, what that meat market type atmosphere you're now. alluding to, what that looks like, and how you were navigating that. It's funny. I wrote like a ten-page blog post about that experience oh wow please um, share that with me off, off offline yeah uh, we'll um I'll, i will put that in the show notes i, I don't I don't know if it's public anymore because it's so uh -huh. <laughs> but at the time i was i was reading a lot of david foster wallace's uh, nonfiction work yeah so you know i was like basically doing what david foster wallace did on that cruise ship or at the illinois state fair uh. except i was doing it at tribeca it was very you know tim wrote me afterwards when he read my post and he was like you like you, you treated it like you were an alien being like you were just uh, micro observing house you know how strange everything was and it was you know it's like i just i'd never been to a film festival before yeah much less tribeca yeah um i was just navigating you know the strangeness of these different types of badge passes that <laughs> offer different types of clearances levels yeah and, yeah, and there's this like sort of posturing that goes on every time you talk to someone else with a badge. Oh, you God. know, people are trying to size you up. Yeah, they're and looking then... at your badge, not your eyes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, my eyes are up here, uh, yeah. and it's not 
and and like like the different sort of lounges that depending on what type of badge oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) and then like just the all the levels of sponsorship that are happening like just the amount of swag that's you know people are sort of jockeying for in terms of like just space I mean, depending on who you are, it can be a real big turnoff, man. I mean, I think I think both you and I are cut from similar cloths that way. What were you doing to help yourself kind of get through it and maybe have a better understanding of it? Because I'm, I'm sure at some point you're like, I, I got to either do this or find a way to be okay with this, or I gotta I gotta not do this at all. I was literally, I mean, I was, I was just writing. Like I was like, yeah. I would just go hang out in the filmmaker lounge and just like write about you know what you were observing what i was observing and like how you know like my way of dealing with it was just like pointing out like and accepting and and leaning into the fact that it was all very constructed and so and so yeah it was and then so i sort of wandered around the festival and like got my bearings for a couple days and then um there was this day where we got you know trained to do our pitch um so we spent a day with some of the other filmmakers who were there also pitching their projects and um, we workshopped, you know, we, we like practiced pitching to each other and I just found it so daunting. Like I, I just, I, I had, I felt like I had multiple panic attacks that day because, uh, you know, I'm such an introvert and I'm so, I was so precious about this project and it was so close to me uh, and, uh, and it's uh, so, uh. it's still difficult to explain mm. what Mind in the Gap is, right? Mm. Um, it's about a lot of different things. Over the last few years, as we've met and connected with more and more doc lifers, we've been asked what the most comprehensive doc filmmaking course out there is. The truth is, we didn't believe there was one. There are plenty of videos and some courses that walk you through some technical aspects of filmmaking and workshops that cover some of the business aspects, but there was nothing that specifically took the doc filmmaker through the whole actual doc filmmaking journey, both creative and business, from A to Z. That is, until we created one. The Documentary Academy is the only all-in-one online documentary film production course that actually starts from the beginning of your film's journey, from story conception, through pre-production and actual production, to post-production, and through to the promotions, marketing, and distribution of your film. The Academy will help you make your most successful documentary film by guiding you on the journey from conception to launch. But don't just take our word for it. Have a look for yourself by going to thedocumentarylife.com academy and discover everything that the Academy has to offer, including a video that takes you inside the Academy for a look around. The Documentary Academy has already greatly helped others realize their power and potential as doc filmmakers. Why not be the next person who brings an awesome documentary film to life? Head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash academy today, and we'll see you there. Your whole life, society tells you, like, oh, be a man, and you're strong, and you're tough, and margaritas are gay, you know, like... You know, you don't grow up thinking that's the way you are. When you're a kid, you just do, you just act. And then somewhere along the line, everyone loses that. Something that uh, that you see really early on, you know, in the first the first minute or two to the, of the film, of the intro, there's these beautiful 
sequences, obviously skateboarding sequences. And and before I watched your film, I intentionally, you know, tried not to know too much about the film. And I just assumed it's about, you know, yeah, some skateboarding kids and their relationship to the filmmaker. And and I am not a skater myself, but as we mentioned earlier uh, in the in the discussion, I lived in a town, i.e. Portland, Oregon, where skating is absolutely massive. I uh, so I couldn't relate necessarily to the skating aspect early on, but uh, as a as a fellow filmmaker, I was taken by the way in which you shot your skating scenes. There are these long takes. Um, there's a very steady cam, sort of fluid, beautiful, dreamlike quality to it, and I'm gonna—I can only assume that you're on a skateboard because, of course, you've been skating for years as well. And in fact, some of these guys looked up to you. That you're skating alongside them, and are you—are you using a glide cam type setup at that at that time? It's exactly what it is—the glide ah. cam. And anytime I could, I would run rather than ride because it just makes you more free to you know go up curbs jump over stairs with them you know well you must have you must have practiced for quite a quite a while because the glide cams that i've i've used over the years it's like okay good luck be anything beyond 10 seconds forget about it but you have (laughs) long long like i said these steady cam-esque shots that are beautiful that go on for quite some time how long were you working with the glide cam man uh i think it was a solid year before i i mean it was but i was doing it it, you know it was partly you know learning it during that developmental period where i was going around the country right you know i was i was really and by the time i met kier you know it was like it become really intuitive to me and i sort of had figured out the rig and like really slimmed it down to the bare necessities Ah. um I think it helped having worked with Steadicam operators so much and just knowing how to balance the rig, how to, you know, the physics behind it, sort of like what lengthening and shortening the post, for example, will do for you. Uh, um, just these really, you know, neat tricks that Steadicam operators taught me. And were you talking with these guys? Because, of course, you've wor- you're working with them fairly regularly. Were you talking with them then directly about your rig and how you were shooting it? Because I'm curious what a Steadicam operator's response is to somebody, this this indie guy who's <laughs> using the glide cams, right? Because generally they scoff at that sort of thing. But these are your colleagues, so they're not going to scoff at it. They're going to talk you through it, right? They would. I mean, now I know that they would have talked me through it. But back then, I didn't even talk about my documentary. <laughs> you know, I didn't talk about anything. You know, like oh, I was trained very much to like just uh, shut uh, up and. I was trained, <laughs> right. Like, well, you if know, you were a camera intern, the, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> well, not even a camera intern, but as a as like the assistant, as the sec, as the steady cam operator's assistant. Yeah. You know, I was yeah. taught like you know the best camera assistant you know should have by the end of the the film the dp not even know your name because that's how good you are yeah (laughs) yeah it sounds about right Another thing that that really kind of spoke to me in watching your film, I felt like I almost want to say the music and the score almost juxtaposed what we were seeing at times. It's just that it's not the kind of music or score one would tend to expect to see with skate video, right? Or footage of skating. And 
I'd love the, like the music in this is beautiful. And again, it lends to that sort of wonderful dreamlike. And it, of course, it gives it a more cinematic sort of feel throughout. At what point did you know that that's the kind of scoring that you were going to go with as opposed to, you know, maybe some like hardcore or punk music, which is like what typically stereotypically you might um, find to go with with, with skating? Uh, from the beginning. I yeah. mean, my first, when I first started cutting 2012, 2013, mm. you know, it's very much like these ethereal sort of drony, you know, melodic scores. I mean, but I think it's just, that's just a symptom of skateboarding being really insular to the point where I feel like that, you know, people don't think of it as this, um, really, um, you, you know, spec, this multi-layered, culture you know they see it as this monolith that's like oh all skaters listen to punk music or all skaters listen to oh yeah um, oh yeah <laughs> yeah i mean so like the the skateboarding community that i belong to you know like really like i i use cat power you know for my skate videos i use bright eyes for my skate videos. <laughs> like the, as, a, as a teen so and like yeah. you know other skate videos i saw had more emotional music and um, so that's was a factor, but you know, I also wanted to highlight this isn't really about skateboard. Like, yeah, I mean, the film yeah, maybe yeah. maybe has like 10, 12 minutes of skateboarding in it. Right. It feels like a lot longer because that's it's the easiest thing to talk about in the film. There's yeah. so many sort of you know <laughs> yeah. difficult things Good, that are in the point. film. Great point. So I think that's why people often you know sort of gravitate towards the skating. As a filmmaker, it's always an interesting choice to insert oneself in their in their own docs, whether it's through narration, whether it's through actually visually being there or being a character. You are a character in this film, both as filmmaker and as as Bing Liu. And and I'm curious, one of the things that struck me as a storytelling device, and, uh, and I don't know if this is the spoiler alert time or not, I'm, I'm not sure, but we'll say spoiler alert. I don't know. But when did you make the choice to hold off really telling your story or part of your story till about midway through the film? How did that, how did that evolve? I mean, I resisted being in the film. Like I didn't set out <laughs> to bet. be in the film. I mean, I didn't want to, I didn't want to make a personal doc, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm but with it's, you. <laughs> so, it, but, it, you know, things kept drawing me in. And yeah. Ultimately it was, you know, at first it was like, okay, I'll give a little breadcrumb that, you know, like I went through something similar, right? you know, in moments that were not intentional. They just happened to be there and, you know, interviews of Verite. After one of the characters reveals to me that there's been abuse yeah. in, you know, one of the other characters I've been following, I had to really think deeply and ethically about how I was going to proceed. Right. And so one of the reasons why I put myself in the film was to, uh, you know, put skin in the game ah, to show, to show like wow. why, I mean, and, it, and it's sort of part and parcel with why the filmmaking becomes meta, why you get a peek mm. into the filmmaking as its own story arc. Oh yeah. Because when you're dealing with this deeply private issue, you know, yeah, I mean, ultimately it, it just, I had a reason to beyond just wanting to put myself in the film yeah. or giving backstory as to how my story relates you know, all of a sudden there was this, these deeper reasons to do it. And I think a lot of it had to do with women characters really mm. emerging from the film. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, ultimately it led me to go interview my mom. Right. Right. Which is, is one of the obviously more, uh, more emotional moments in, in the film. It's, it's, it's difficult to watch and it's, it's, 
as a as a as a fellow doc filmmaker, it's difficult to watch because you know, of course, in these meta moments when we can see the crew on set and we can see you asking questions to your mom, I'm just thinking, oh man, oh man, what is this like for Bing? Because he knows there's questions that he wants to ask his mom, and he's being not only is he filming her and putting her in a tight situation, he's being filmed himself. Uh, that must have been a pretty big day for you uh, I mean what did you I mean are you emotionally preparing for that beforehand or are you just going in and, and just trying to remain as technical as possible what was that like yeah I mean I definitely focused on the technical aspects but the whole I mean I was a one-man crew for the whole shoot except for that one except shoot. for that day yeah yeah so I hired a sound person and a camera person because <clears throat> I wanted I needed uh, to, to, to be vulnerable. I needed to show my vulnerability. Yeah. I needed to create a situation where I didn't have control. Mm. Um, so that was the only way I could do it. You know, like, I don't think is like, how do you be, you know, how do you be vulnerable when you're the one in control of the filmmaking? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I did have that in mind and I was like, well, I need to like, just be myself because otherwise this, you know, this isn't going to work. One of the final questions I want to ask you about the film, and again, this is not to to give any you know true spoilers away, but one of your characters, um, there's a uh, there's a moment where we may realize something that's extremely revealing about one of your characters, and uh, I wrongfully assumed that you were friends with all these guys, and, and thank you for correcting me on on that in the beginning of the conversation, but I guess. Have these guys seen the film, one? And two, how do you go about, you know, the, this particular character's name was Zach. Um, knowing what you reveal about Zach on film, uh, as a doc filmmaker, what are you doing to protect yourself um, in a legal sense about revealing what you reveal? And then again, w- w- give me a reaction if these guys have seen the film. Yeah, I mean, so my approach, so, you know, like the film is very much is built on very stilted moments that are often very emotionally intense, but, you know, and, and but in reality, it's, and it, you know, so never, and, and like, you know, it feels like, oh God, they're going to see the film and they're going to like look at this moment and, <laughs> you know, really hone in on it and, and focus on it. But in reality, like it was a five year long conversation with them about, you know, how do you feel about being in the film? Yeah. You know, and like I told them early on in the process, we're going to show you the film before we release it, before, you know, even picture lock it. Ah. Um, and so we did, you know, showed everyone, Zach, Nina, Kier, my mom, brother, um, separately. Uh, and you know, and like they all were overwhelmed by the honesty of it and no one wanted anything changed except Nina. Nina wanted to shorten that cell phone recording a little bit. Ah, okay, Okay. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, like that, it was just the result of a long and transparent conversation about, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, that's 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 the beauty of the relationships that we form with our subjects when we're spending that kind of time. That's the authenticity comes out. But still, man, that's uh, for those guys to watch it and then all give the OK. That's uh, that doesn't happen all of the time, you know. Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, I mean, that's that's the biggest thing. That's one of the biggest things that Cartempoin really helped me on was just them teaching me like their their ethical style of filmmaking that they yeah. always show their their participants of the documentary, um, you know, the the film before it's finished, 
not to give them editorial control, but to give them uh, a chance to earnestly weigh in and you know, ultimately be on board and be yeah. supportive of the project if that's possible. Um, and it wasn't until much later when I found out not all filmmakers do that. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Not at all. Which, which you know, I, and, and Gordon has said this, too. It's, it's, it is really about power. Like, if you're doing a film about Anthony Weiner, he doesn't need to see the film before, <laughs> you know, it comes out. But when you're doing it on disenfranchised people, when you're doing it on people with less power than yeah. you... Um, you know, it's, it does, you know, I, I believe that you should show them yeah, the film yeah. before it's finished. We've had a number of people come on, uh, from Cartemquin, but I feel like in parts of this conversation, you have revealed more about what that, what that relationship is like between the indie doc filmmaker and Cartemquin than we have had yet. Um, which is brilliant. So I wonder perhaps in wrapping up, you might be able to share for any of our listeners out there who, who may have a film that they feel like that they could uh, perhaps send on to Tim or, or whoever, what would you recommend in terms, how do we approach Cartemquin with our films or our projects? I mean, they're not like a big corporate, you know, <laughs> entity in a shiny building downtown. Yeah, they're, they're exactly. Like a, <laughs> Yeah, they're in like a reconstituted, uh, you know, apartment building <laughs> you know, like that was purchased in the 70s that, you know, has creaky floors. Uh, they're really approachable. You just you go on the website. There's an email right there for you to go and you know, send your project, pitch your project. And they'll, you know, generally they'll get back to you. They, they meet, I think, every quarter, a few times a year to take a look at these projects that are getting pitched to them. And they decide collectively you know, like, how can we help these films if we can help them? Yeah. Or, you know, so it's, it's, it's a pretty transparent, easy, you know, shouldn't be a scary process. Right. They're, they're nice Midwestern people. Yes, they are. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Bing, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you uh, on the program. Uh, as we finish up here, is there anything that you would like to add, uh, whether in this conversation or that you could speak to directly um, in any way to doc filmmakers? Uh, I just want to give a shout out to Steve James for giving me my big professional doc <laughs> break when he hired me to do America to Me, uh, you know, yes. to, to direct and shoot three stories from America to Me. And then for, you know, afterwards, when I asked him to come on as an EP, him, you know, really agreeing to do that. We had, we had Steve on the program uh, on basically the eve of, of the Academy Awards. Uh, which was amazing to talk with him at that time. And uh, wow. he's coming back on here. Uh, we're going to speak with him in October to speak with, the, with this new project that uh, that you were obviously also a part of. Um, so um, I'll make sure to, to let Steve know. Bing, uh, thank you so much for being on The Documentary Life. What a pleasure. What a great conversation about doc filmmaking and doc living as a whole. Uh, you were a great person to talk to on these subjects. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.